0: As podcast partner, we're pleased to be able to bring you a selection of the sessions from the festival, including this one with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David Finkel, who spent eight months with 800 US Army infantry soldiers in Iraq during President Bush's infamous campaign, The Surge. It is with considerable pleasure that I welcome to the stage David Finkel.
1: Hi, everyone. Um, it's, uh, it's a nice thing to be here to be able to talk about uh, this book. Uh, Thanks to the uh, Writers' Festival for inviting me. Thanks also to Scribe Publications for publishing the book here in Australia. Um, Friends who know better than I uh, say the worst way to begin a presentation is to read an excerpt. So without further ado, I'd like to read an excerpt. Um, This is the way the book begins uh, about the surge. And... uh, Fair warning, the excerpt will last maybe three minutes, four minutes. It contains two bad words. So uh, with that, his soldiers weren't yet calling him the lost cause behind his back, not when this began. The soldiers of his who, were in, who would be injured were still perfectly healthy, and the soldiers of his who would die were still perfectly alive. A soldier who was a favorite of his and who was often described as a younger version of him hadn't yet written of the war in a letter to a friend, I've had enough of this bullshit. Another soldier, one of his best, hadn't yet written in the journal he kept hidden, I've lost all hope, I feel the end is near for me, very, very near. Another hadn't yet gotten angry enough to shoot a thirsty dog that was lapping up a puddle of human blood. Another, who at the end of all this would become the battalion's most decorated soldier, hadn't yet started dreaming about the people he had killed and wondering if God was going to ask him about the two who had been climbing a ladder. Another hadn't yet started seeing himself shooting a man in the head, and then seeing the little girl who had just watched him shoot the man in the head every time he shut his eyes. For that matter, his own dreams hadn't started yet either, at least the ones he would remember, the one in which his wife and friends were in a cemetery surrounding a hole into which he was suddenly falling. Those dreams would be along soon enough, but in early April 2007, Ralph Koslerich, a U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel who had led a battalion of some 800 soldiers into Baghdad as part of George W. Bush's surge, was still finding a reason every day to say, it's all good. He would wake up in eastern Baghdad and hail its bitter burning air and say it, it's all good. He would go outside past the blast walls, the sandbags, the bunkers, the aid station where the wounded from other battalions were treated. The annex where they assembled the dead and say it. He would say it in his little office with its walls cracked from various explosions while reading the morning's emails. From his wife, I love you so much. I wish we could lay naked in each other's arms, bodies meshing together, perhaps a little sweat. From his mother in rural Washington state after some surgery, I must say the sleep was the best I've had in months. Everything turned out to be normal. Goody, goody. From his father, I've laid awake many nights since I last saw you and have often wished I could be alongside you to assist in some way. He would say it on his way to the chapel where he would attend Catholic mass conducted by a priest who had to be flown in by helicopter because the previous priest was blown up in a Humvee. He would say it when he went in his Humvee into the neighborhoods of Eastern Baghdad where more and more roadside bombs were exploding now that the surge was underway, killing soldiers, taking off arms, taking off legs, causing concussions, exploding eardrums, leaving some soldiers angry and others vomiting and others in sudden tears. Not his soldiers though, other soldiers from other battalions. It's all good, he would say when he came back. It could seem like a nervous tick, this thing that he said, or a prayer of some sort. Or maybe it was a declaration of optimism, simply that, nothing more, because he was optimistic even though he was in the midst of a war that to the American public and the American media, and even to some in the American military, seemed all over in April 2007, except for the pessimism, the praying, and the nervous ticks, but not to him. Well, here are the differences George W. Bush had said announcing the surge, and Ralph Koslerich had thought, will be the difference, my battalion, my soldiers, me. And every day since then, he had said it, it's all good. After which he might say the other thing he often said, always without irony and utterly convinced, we're winning. He'd like to say that too. Except now on April 6, 2007 at 1 a.m., as someone banged on his door waking him up, he said something different. What the fuck, he said, opening his eyes. Um, I wanted to start with that uh, because here we are in 2010, And in so many ways, uh, at least to much of the American public, this war seems pretty much over. And we can talk about that later, whether that's true or not. But that's the assumption. Uh, In 2007, that wasn't the case at all. The moment at hand really did seem, in America, like the war had arrived at the edge of the lost moment, the tragic moment. And that was interesting to me as a journalist and as a writer to go try to chronicle that moment. Again, and the other thing about uh, early 2007, uh, the great policy books on this war had been done. Uh, Memoir was starting to come out, but the type of book that that relies on uh, a disinterested uh, narrator, a journalist, uh, immersing himself and observing what was going on is simply chronicling The Far End of Policy, The Effects and Consequences of Policy, that book hadn't been done in this war. So I decided to uh, leave my job at the Washington Post, go to Baghdad, and uh, follow this battalion. Again, to remind you of the battalion, it's called the 216, average age 19. Most of these guys on their first deployment, and most of them had never been outside the United States. They leave the snow of Kansas, they get on a plane, and then they get on a helicopter, and they land by the luck of the draw in eastern Baghdad in a part that turned out to be quite vicious. Uh, They were supposed to be there for 12 months. uh, On the day that that this beginning excerpt talks about, which is really when the war began for them, it was the day of their first uh, KIA. Uh, That's also the day they found out their deployment would last 15 months. Uh, Again, they were there as part of something called the counterinsurgency strategy. The main idea was if you can make the population feel safe, everything else will work out. So every day what these guys would do is they would leave this base called Rustamaya in East Baghdad, and this is a base that no one went to. Congressional delegations didn't go there. Uh, USO characters, no one went there. I think one day uh, some really bad third-tier professional golfers, From America showed up and these guys were so unknown that even the golfers had no idea who they were. No one went to this place Um, but that's where these soldiers ended up and they would go into the streets of East Baghdad to try to bring it under control. In East Baghdad uh, at that point uh, the neighborhoods had been pretty well cleansed and and the west side of the Tigris River was largely Sunni at this point and the east side Uh, especially the Crescent that the 216 got, which is outside of Sadr City. Uh, It was a a Shiite area where the weapon of choice, well, in West Baghdad there were suicide bombers, uh, snipers. On the east side, there were some snipers that soldiers had to deal with, but the main weapon used against the soldiers was a particular type of roadside bomb called an EFP, which stands for Explosively Explosively formed penetrator, and I just want to take a second and explain this thing. Cost maybe $100 to make. It's a tube filled with explosives, and at the end of the tube was, you know, it's almost the size of a dinner plate. It 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 was a milled piece of copper that was fitted onto the end of the tube. And either electronically or through a buried wire, someone would be standing far away in the shadows of eastern Baghdad with an aiming point in the distance that might be a tilted light pole, just whatever, whatever the aiming point was, he would sit there or stand there, and when the convoy reached that aiming point, he would depress the trigger. The explosives would explode, off would go this copper disc with such velocity that it immediately became semi-molten, almost took on the shape of a tadpole, and simply burn through whatever was in front of it, whether it was the thickest armored door of a Humvee that cost the U.S. Army $200,000, or whether it was the soldiers inside. Now, what made the EFPs so insidious, I think, was the fact that they could be and were hidden anywhere. Uh, they were hidden under piles of trash, and I can tell you that most of Baghdad at that point was a pile of trash. They were hidden in animal carcasses. They were, uh, they were disguised as pieces of wall, pieces of curb. And the fact is the soldiers found a lot of them before they went off, but there simply were too many to find them all. And they kept going off and soldiers kept getting injured. And as the months went by, these 800 young, rather naive, optimistic men began obviously to transform uh, as happens in any war and uh, death after death, injury after injury, you would begin seeing the calculations of, uh, of a 19-year-old uh, young man, and it was, it was heartbreaking in a way. To see, to see a guy, as I said on the video, get in a Humvee and say, today I'm going to sit with my right foot in front of my left foot, so that when the bomb comes through, I'll just lose one foot instead of two. Or I'll ride around with my hands tucked behind my armor because maybe I'll have both my hands at the end of the day. There was one guy who insisted on tying a horseshoe to the front of his Humvee as if that might help. And, in fact, it did help one day because I was in the Humvee behind it. EFP, uh, the main charge passes right in front of my Humvee, right behind his. Uh, Everything's all dinged up, but no one died that day, so maybe it did help. But this was the war. This was the war these guys walked into. He would sit there and he would watch these kids make jokes about what their last words would be. Uh, He would see the relief when they came back. Uh, they had made it through another day. Uh, look, I, I, I don't want to pretend these guys got the worst area in Baghdad. There were worse areas. Uh, they were a lot better. They were somewhere in the middle, and, uh, and this was also a good thing to write about because sometimes in the middle are the, uh, the best lessons of all. So the only promise I made uh, when I went over is this guy, Koslerich. I told him I wanted to do a book that I wanted to come over. The promise was that this would not be an agenda-driven book, that I wasn't there to pronounce the surge of success or a failure to say war is good, war is bad. I had no idea what was going to happen. The point was simply to go and chronicle this corner, the ground level version of the war to add to all the other things being written about what was going on in Iraq. Not a polemic, not a first person, no agenda. Kostler said, if that's your promise, my promise to you is you have full access to everything we're doing. And he kept his word. So they were there for 14 months. Uh, I was with them eight months. I would have gotten there quicker, but it took two months to work out disability insurance. And uh, and uh, off I went. And the book, uh, you know, it's a pretty simple book. Uh, some guys went to war. Things happened to them, and they came home changed. That's the basic structure of what happened here. Uh, but it was, it's you know what happened to these guys is just unbelievable. If this were a work of fiction, I think I would be criticized for having written something incredibly contrived. But the fact is everything uh, in this book, uh, the names are the names, the events are the offense, it's all documented. It's it's an honest version of what happened to this group of young men. So um, it's built, uh, basically there are two things going on. Each chapter begins with a quote from George W. Bush. Something he said on the day or near the day that the chapter I'm about to write unfolds. For instance, on September 4th, uh, 2007, Bush comes to Australia, uh, is overheard on the tarmac that day um, saying to the deputy prime minister who asked how the war was going, he said, we're kicking ass. All right, so that's how that chapter begins. and which was his version of the war that day. But, but it, the point isn't to poke fun at Bush. The, the, the point is to get across that a war is always two wars. There's the one that's being fought in Washington, in this case, through policy and politics and money. And then there's the war being fought at the far end on the ground. So beyond the, 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 the beginning quote from Bush, the things then unfold episodically through a series of characters. Adrian? If you're there, there's a a few pictures I want to show of some of the characters. This is Ralph Koslerich, uh, the commander of the battalion, Uh, the guy who was incredibly optimistic, relentlessly optimistic. No matter what was going on, he would find some way to say it's all good and move on to the next thing. Hey, Can we try the next one? This was uh, second-in-command, a guy named Brent Cummings, who in many ways is the moral voice of the book, who at the beginning when we meet him, he is incredibly concerned with trying to fish a cadaver of a a dead Iraqi out of a septic tank. Uh, Soldiers lift the lid, they see this cadaver in there, and he wants the body removed because he said, look, this is somebody's son, this is somebody's husband perhaps, somebody's father perhaps, the moral thing to do is we've got to get this body out of there. By the end of the, uh, the 15 months, uh, as all hell broke loose and Brent Cummings was watching a video stream of Iraqis firing on U.S. soldiers, he was screaming, die, monkey, die. And somehow in the transition from compassion about a cadaver to a soldier screaming that is in many ways the story of any war. Hey, how about the next one? I did my best to bring Iraqi voices into the book. It was a little difficult uh, because of the circumstances, but this is a, uh, a great Iraqi national, a guy who went by the name Izzy. Uh, Izzy loved America so thoroughly that among the few possessions he carried with him wherever he went was a uh, frequent flyer card from Pan American World Airways that I think had been out of business for a decade at that point. Um, next. Uh, this is a guy uh, named Michael Emery and, uh, and his wife, Maria. So when I talk about two wars, uh, in April 2007, soon after these guys got there, there was a mission to try to bring control to a particular part of, uh, of East Baghdad. And Michael Emery was on a rooftop when a sniper got a clear shot at him, and he was shot in the back of the head. Uh, down goes Michael Emery, quite seriously injured. He was airlifted out, first to Landstuhl in Germany, and then back to the States, to Bethesda Naval outside of Washington, D.C. And, and every day, uh, Ralph Kosserich would get an update on how Michael Emery was doing. Uh, and these were good things to get. Michael Emery sat up today. Michael Emery told his wife, I love you. Michael Emery did this. Michael Emery did that. And so sitting in Baghdad, uh, uh, wondering about Michael Emery, it seemed... Uh, like quite a bit of good news. Um, Maybe a month after he was shot, I left Baghdad. Uh, I needed a break. I went home. I went to Bethesda Naval. I went to Michael Emery. And if I can read another excerpt from the book, uh, the truth of those emails turns out to be this. Give me your hand, baby, Maria Emery said to her husband, who was diapered, who could barely move, who had a ventilator tube inserted into his throat, who was looking in panic at his wife, who was armored in a mask and gown and gloves. And when she took his right hand and wrapped it around hers, he emitted a high-pitched whimper. Are you cold, she asked. He didn't answer. Just looked at her, less panic now. His head was as misshapen as the moon over Rustamaya. Baby, she said, leaning closer. Sweetheart, she said, even closer. She straightened up. He whimpered again, so this is what I do now, she explained, of what life had been since a phone call at 2.30 p.m. on April 28th in which the Department of Defense informed her that her husband had been shot and now she added details by reading from a diary she had been keeping since then. May the 3rd, I kissed him on his lips. This was in Germany. I told him, I'm going to kiss you on the lips and if you can feel it move, and I kissed him twice and he moved both times. May the 6th, we got on the medevac flight and we flew from Germany here to Bethesda. May the 17th, he opened his eyes for the very first time. May the 19th, he moved his fingers and his legs and I told him that I loved him and he started crying. May the 20th, he was just sleeping. May the 25th, the president came to see him. And now she put the diary down as she thought about the day that President Bush came to visit about what he had said to her. He said. Thank you for your husband's service to his country, and he was sorry for what our family was going through. About what she had said to him, thank you for coming. About what she wished she had said to him, that he didn't understand what we were going through because he doesn't know how it feels, and that I didn't agree with what was going on with the war. About why she hadn't said it, because I felt it would not have made any difference, and my husband, of course, had his eyes open, and I didn't want him getting upset. About what Bush didn't understand, I mean, when I saw him, I was so angry I started crying, and he saw me and came to me and gave me a hug and said, everything's going to be okay. That was why he came over to her, she said, because he misunderstood the reason for her tears. He'd had no idea they were because of anger, and he'd had no idea they were because of him. And nothing was okay, she said, so he was wrong about that, too. Her husband was ruined. In seven weeks, she had lost so much weight that her dress size had gone from a 12 to a six. Her daughter was now living with a relative. She was now living in a hospital. The doctors were saying it could be years before her husband was better, if ever, and hope, if it existed at all, had to be extracted from wherever it could. From the awful day, for instance, in which he lifted his right hand and placed it on her shoulder, and then tried to move it across her breasts, and then started to cry. So many tears in this place, and now there were more from her as he closed his eyes and dozed off and she knew he couldn't see. She stepped out of the room. She removed the gloves, the gown, the mask. She hurried to a vending machine to get something to eat and then came right back so she would be next to him when he woke up. Gown back on, mask back on, gloves back on, waiting. He opened his eyes. For a moment there was alarm, and then he saw her. There she was, as if she hadn't moved. Can you give me a kiss, she said? Can you give me a kiss? She leaned in until her mask was against his lips. I love you, baby, she said, and then drew back, sensing that something was wrong. But what? What could it be? Are you cold, she guessed. He looked at her. Are you cold? He moved his lips ever so slightly. He seemed to be trying to answer. She moved her ear to his mouth. More hope. Yes, he said. There's a... um, if we can try the next picture. Yeah, this is, a, uh, this is one of the very best soldiers named Adam Schuman. Uh, when Michael Emery was shot and they had to get him down three flights of stairs so he could be medevaced, they couldn't figure out how to do this. And Adam Schuman finally put Emery on his back in a fireman's carry and took him down the three flights. But it just so happened because of the angle of things that all of the blood from Emery's head kept going into Adam Schuman's mouth. And... Uh, Six months later, uh, he was still tasting the blood, and the day had come where he simply couldn't fight the war anymore. He had been in Iraq. This was his third deployment. He had been in for a 1,000 days at that point, universally acknowledged to be a great soldier, and he couldn't do it anymore. And so so he went home. Um, The day he left, he walked to the helicopter, and there was a line of six guys waiting for the helicopters to come in stood in line, helicopters come down. He had stopped on the way to call his wife, by the way, to say he was coming. And she basically said, I'm so scared of what you're going to do to me. And he said, I'm scared too. Got on, got in line, helicopters came down. Everyone moves forward. It's Adam Schumann's turn, hand comes down. What? The guy yells, this isn't your helicopter. Doesn't know what this means. Helicopters fill, they lift off. Now it's just Adam Schumann standing by himself. Uh, here come the next round of helicopters with big red crosses on the side. The helicopters for the wounded and for the dead and for Adam Schumann, who was a bit of both. So that's how Adam Schuman left the war, and two years later, uh, I talked to him frequently, uh, he's still trying to outrace the thing. You know, one day he, he's on the phone so happy because he just had a baby boy, and the next day he's on the phone saying, I don't know what to do, I'm off my meds, I just had a gun in my mouth, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do for the rest of the day. So for Adam and for so many of these guys, uh, you know, this is a war that goes on. Uh, Next picture. Yeah. Hmm. Before I talk about this guy, uh, let me spend a minute talking about a soldier named Duncan Cruxton. So on on September 4th, when Bush comes to Australia and says we're kicking ass, That was his version of the war that day. And I'm not going to dispute that the point isn't to say that was wrong. That was his war. But on September 4th for the 216, it was another EFP going into a Humvee. Two guys, three guys are dead right away. A fourth loses both of his legs. And then there's Duncan Crookston. 19 years old, uh, loses both legs here, uh, loses his right arm here loses his left arm here, and what little remains of Duncan Duncan Crookston is very badly burned, but he doesn't die. Uh, He's airlifted to Lanchdale and then to Texas, San Antonio, to Brook Army Medical Center. Almost five months later, when Ralph Koslerich is on home leave, everyone got 18 days away from this war. At the end of his leave, he went to visit his wounded soldiers including Duncan Crookston. Duncan, by then, had had 30 surgeries. Uh, his ears had fallen off. Uh, his nose had fallen off. Eyebrows gone, eyelids gone. Uh, he was bandaged. And so Ralph Kossrich turns the corner of this burn unit to go into the room and, and sees, you know, it just didn't make sense. There was just so little of Duncan left. Uh, He's in bed, can't really move, and that's, uh, that's the day that Koslerich didn't say it's all good. He just kind of said bastards under his breath, went in, went into the room, did his Koslerich thing, stood by the bedside, and started talking to Duncan, who, of course, was completely unresponsive. Uh, gave him some medals, uh, no response from Duncan. And then Kossler said, uh, "You need to get better." And those are your orders from your commander. Do you understand? And then there was this. There was the slightest nod, and that's when it became clear that, you know, he knew all, he knew everything. He knew Kossler was there. He could hear. He was taking everything in. He was aware of what had happened to him. Just in that little nod. So uh talks a little more, leaves, goes from there to the airport, flies back to Iraq, goes into his office, turns on the computer, and waiting for him is an email uh, from Duncan's mother. Dear friends and family, it began, it is with great sadness I write to you. Duncan passed away at 3.46 p.m. today after the decision was made to stop heroic measures, so he had died. The email ends... Words cannot express the gratitude we feel toward all those who offered support and prayer to Duncan and our families during the past five months. We can take away from this experience the knowledge that good people exist in this world, that evil is worth fighting for that reason, and that Duncan was a proud example of a good person who did not stand by and allow it to flourish by doing nothing. Duncan would have been 20 years old tomorrow. He will be forever 19 now and forever missed. So, you know, so... So we reached the point where, you know, the question occurs: uh, Was this worth? Was this worth it? Did the surge work? Uh, was the war won? And when I talk about this, I have to tell you I don't like to answer this question. It's not really my business. I, I would rather the soldiers' experiences provided the answer. But let me go a little farther. I think it. I think it depends on how we are willing to define what victory really is. Uh, so. Let me read one more excerpt. Um, it's about this guy. This is Nate Showman. And Showman was the one who, in the very first excerpt I read, he was the, the young uh, uh terrific soldier. And what happened at the end of their deployment, these guys were done. They were packing to go home. And they were, they were thinking, uh, almost to a man, that they had made a difference. Because the fact was, eastern Baghdad was quieter. Violence was down. And then you talk about the consequences of a decision. Uh, The Prime Minister of Iraq decided to take Iraqi forces into the southern city of Basra to calm it down. And there were plenty of headlines. This was March 2008. Plenty of headlines about this. Uh, Iraqi defectors, Iraqi deaths, on and on and on. What went unreported was what happened outside of Sadr City, where the 216 was packing up. They had, they had maybe 10 days left. Uh, they had made it. And just like that, because of what happened in Basra, the place completely explodes in the worst warfare these guys had experienced in 14 months. So instead of packing up, now they're out in the middle of it. I, you know, they lost count of how many rockets and mortars and, 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 and bombs and, and how much gunfire, and, and, and how many EFPs were going off. It was just ceaseless, day after day after day. And at one point, Nate Showman is leading a convoy, EFP goes off, two soldiers are dead, uh, including a kid named Patrick Miller, who was probably the one I knew the best of all the casualties, of, of, uh, yeah, just a, a great kid. So, Nate Showman comes back to the base uh, afterwards, and Ralph Kosserich wants to find out what happened. So this last little excerpt is about that. What was going on is Kosserich was writing a memorial speech for these two soldiers. In another part of the base, Nate Showman was writing too. Ray baby, he wrote to his new wife. He had come in at 7.55 a.m. with blood on his boots and a sadness so thorough that he'd been unable to speak even when a few soldiers asked him how he was doing. His answer was to shake his head and stare at the ground. He had spent the rest of the day in isolation, and only now had he found some words he wanted to say, writing to his wife, I'm going to need some help when I get home. He slept only a little that night, even though he was exhausted, and the next day, at Kostlerich's request, he went reluctantly to the operations center for a debriefing. The two of them had always been able to talk more easily than most commanders and junior officers, maybe because Showman's self-confidence and methodical thinking in some ways reminded Kostlerich of himself. I'm just trying to figure out what the hell happened, Kozlerich said now to Showman, getting right to it. And when Showman looked at him in silence, Kozlerich said quietly, if you would, just walk me through. So Showman began by telling Kozlerich about what Patrick Miller was doing just before he died, that he was standing outside of his Humvee eating a date that he'd been given by an Iraqi national policeman. The last thing I saw of little Miller is how he put it. And he didn't bother to explain that Miller was called Little Little Miller to differentiate him from Big Miller, a soldier with a back so hairy that there would be bets among soldiers over who would be brave enough to lick it. Or about the night his soldiers woke him up, and there was Little Miller dancing in front of him, naked except for sunglasses, an M4, a bandana, and a thong, and laughing hysterically as he chanted, I'm ready to fight the terrorists. All of the soldiers were laughing, and he had laughed too. He'd been crazy about Miller. Little Miller was putting a can of gas in the trunk. The national guy gave him a date, he said, and he didn't bother with the rest of it, that the reason the Iraqi gave him a date was out of gratitude, and the reason for the gratitude was that the Americans had come to save him, and the reason that the Americans had come to save him because they had been trying to save him since 2003 when the number of dead American soldiers was zero and Patrick Miller was 19 years old and about to start college and thinking he was going to become a doctor. And instead, he took a date and ate it and gave the guy the thumbs up and got back in the truck, Showman said. And then the truck took off on a route that Showman had just thought of, which led straight into an exploding EFP. So, uh, you know, maybe that's a good place to stop. It's, uh, and I'll say one more thing. You know, so we, so here's the intent of this book. Uh. It's, 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 it's not news that war is a bad thing. We all know this. Uh, but the details do matter, I think. And why? I don't want the book to supersede what goes into a policy decision. I think what happened to this battalion, and by extension so many battalions, has to be considered. Um, if we open the paper and we see a headline that says three soldiers dead in Baghdad from a roadside bomb, if you're like me, you may pause and you think, hmm, that's, uh, that's sad, and uh, what's the body count at now? And you kind of go on with your day, and I guess that's the way it goes. Uh, what the book tries to do, what the book tries to get down is, is what happens on the right-hand side of that headline. Uh, it's, it's not an argument for or against war, it's a chronicle of the effects of war. And, you know, as America uh, heads into Afghanistan more fully, uh, as Australia heads into whatever it's going to face next, whatever it joins with, uh, I think these stories do matter, and they do need to be considered, if not by the people making the decisions, at least people by your, like yourselves who, who are thoughtful and, and will think about this. Um, I hope there are questions uh, about the book, and I'd love to answer some.
0: Can I ask you just to put your hands together for David? Thank you, David. That's when. And um, I I would rather greedily like to ask a couple of questions. Yeah, okay. Um, And one of them is, uh, how did you win the confidence of these Mm. young men? How were you able to convince them that you weren't there, given the things that you saw, given the things you saw them
1: do. Yeah, so here's a good day for a soldier. Uh, by the way, on top of everything else, there's a uh, journalist with a notebook who's going to be hanging out with you, writing down everything you say. Uh, and also, he's not 19. He's, uh, he's 52 and clearly not the toughest guy in the room. Uh, so it took, a, it took a little while. And uh, I think even though the command structure uh, took me at my word that I wasn't going to write a critical book... Uh, Now I've explained what critical means, Uh, the soldiers uh, didn't trust me. Uh, It took some time. Uh, I think one of the benefits of the type of journalism I do uh, is you you stay, you wait, you be there, and then over time uh, people begin to trust you. Uh, In this case, the more I stayed and the more I was there during bad things, and that when bad things happened, I didn't become a problem for the soldiers, that I stayed there doing my job, taking notes. Uh, I think that helped uh, with credibility. Uh, uh, the first time an EFP exploded on the convoy I was in, the fact that I didn't freak out, uh, but did my job, that helped. Uh, when I was out on missions and there was sniper fire and, uh, and I didn't become a problem for the soldiers, that helped as well. But it really. I think it wasn't until the book came out and people, you know, read the thing uh, and found an authentic version of truth in it that that's really when the trust finally developed. And
0: and I think that leads to my second question. I know you don't like talking um, about yourself, but um, when you're reflecting on what kind of a book you'd written... and whether it was an accurate representation of all the things you'd seen and all the things you'd experienced. You started to get a response from those soldiers once yeah. they'd read it. And I'd, I would like you to tell us about the response from those men once they read your book, because I think that is about as a, a defining an accolade for what you've done as, as there could be. So what did they yeah, make Well: it, Well,
1: you never know if you, if you, if you really even though you think you're telling the truth, whether that's gonna resonate with people. Uh, Book came out in September and there's been uh, uh, a lot of critical acclaim, I'm happy to say. Uh, More uh, moving uh, have been the emails from soldiers, uh, some from the battalion, some from other battalions. Uh, The general theme seems to be uh, uh, Mr. Finkel, yeah, I vaguely remember you. Uh, I read your book. The thing is, when I came home, uh, everyone wanted to know what it was like. And I didn't want to talk about it, and I don't want to talk about it. Uh, but now I just hand people your book and say, read this, and you'll understand what it was like and why I don't want to talk about it. So that's good. There's, there's another type of email. Um, like there, there are always decisions you, I, I guess you have to make as a writer, how far to go to get something across without going too far, where you 're simply just glorying in details and uh, you know I guess the term for it is war porn and uh, And so I had a decision to make as a writer at one point when uh, a soldier had been hit by an EFP he was brought into the aid station and uh, so lined up watching this, there was Kostlerch, there was Brent Cummings, there was the uh, the chaplain, uh, there was a command sergeant major, there was myself, and and I have to tell you, the the efforts to save the soldier, uh, you know, it was just so violent, uh, stripped down. Uh, the EFP had shredded him pretty thoroughly, and, uh, and every time they did a chest compression on him, uh, more pieces of him would drop to the ground, and at one point, a a nurse trying to tidy up and get some supplies kicked something small, and it went rolling across, kind of skidding across the floor. It came to a rest against my boot. The guy next to me looked down and said, that's a toe. So a writing decision. Do you include that in the book? Uh, To me, it's it's the kind of detail uh, that if I were a reader, there's just something about that small detail that seems a little transporting. So authenticating uh, that uh, it seemed appropriate to use it, so I put it in. Uh, I'm also a father, and uh, and you know the thought of uh, Joshua Reeves' parents and also his wife reading this uh, this was disturbing to me because of course they knew he had died, but they didn't know the details. And they weren't going to find out the details until they read it in this book, if they read it. So, nonetheless, you know, I put it in. Um, a week before the book came out, I had sent copies to as many families as I could with a note saying, this book is coming out, uh, there's some stuff in there about the death of your son. If you'd like to, if you ever read it and you want to talk to me, please, just please, please do. Um, I don't know how long it was, maybe a month, month and a half after the book came out, I got an email from Joshua Reeves's father. Well, uh, you know, so, okay, uh, opened it up, and, uh, and it turned out, fortunately, to be uh, a lovely email where he said, basically, uh, thank you for the book. Uh, because of that, I got to spend the last hours of my son's life with him, and I wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise, so you have my gratitude. All right, so, but it could have gone the other way, you know? It could have been a really angry... Letter saying, why in the world did you have to put such intimate things in about my son? But in this case, that was the response. And uh, the email means quite a lot to me. Sure,
0: it does. I'd like to um, throw the opportunity uh, for some questions to David. I'll, I'll hand over my...
1: I should say, uh, you know, there are funny parts of the book, too. It's, 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 it's not all grim. Uh, these were 19-year-old kids. You know, they were as profane, they were vulgar, they were hysterical. And... Uh, so there's some of that in there, too. Uh, hi, David. Hi. Uh, in this country, it's very hard for the media
0: to get basic information from our uh, armed forces. Never mind you know, uh, going, going to Afghanistan with the SAS or something. Why is it so different in your country? Why are the armed forces?
1: You know, well, I don't know that it is. Um, I caught some breaks here. Uh, I mean, I covered the beginning of the war for the Post. Uh, I think we had two dozen reporters. Uh, uh, half were embedded, and half were, uh, I think, what was it? Unilaterals, which basically meant you went to Pakistan. Uh, you paid a lot of money to rent a four-wheel drive. Uh, you went across the berm, and then you just kind of drove around watching the war. And I was one of those guys at first. Uh, and I had my suspicions about the embed program. But the theory at the post was if you put all these reports together, you have a pretty decent representation of what was going on in the war on that day. Uh, by the time of the surge, things had become so bad. Uh, reporters were really constrained from moving around freely. And since my focus was on the soldiers themselves, of course I embedded. Yeah, I mean, I was there with them in their company. Uh, that's not to say uh, that that was typical or easy. Um, uh, in this case, you know, Koslerch was good to his word. The whole time I was there, they only asked me twice not to put, not to report on something. And these, it was so evident to me. These were about technological matters, and it was so evident to me that if I put them in the book, I, I would be putting future lives at stake. That it was easy not to put that stuff in, but everything else, on the record, open, there for me to see. But. Again, I think I was lucky because they happened to go to a base where few people went and there was not a public information officer. Um, their uh, PAO was on another base. And and that break, uh, I think, helped tremendously because uh, otherwise I would have had a guide with me constantly, and in this case I didn't. So, so uh, don't think this is representative of, of how easy it is. I think I just you know, caught the right waves at the right time. Hello, David. Um, Do you have any thoughts, or what are your thoughts, on the motivation, America's motivation for this war? America's motivation? Uh, Can I limit it to the soldiers' motivations? It's not quite the same question, is it? Yeah, I think I'm more comfortable with that one, though. Uh, Well, let me explain why I'm uncomfortable uh, answering your prime question. Uh, as I said, I didn't uh, write a book about policy. Uh, the only thing I saw of this war was what occurred in front of me, or or what I saw through video documentation or audio documentation. It, it was really quite a limited view. And and you know, to answer the question of what the was, you know, I mean, I mean, we know all the guesswork. It was it was. Uh, oh, WMD, it was oil, it was this or it was that. Hell, man, I, I have no idea. I wasn't in those meetings. And, and, and for me, to answer your question, is if I know what I'm talking about, uh, I think I would be as, as vapid and full of air as so many of the commentators. The soldiers would sit and watch on TV over there and think, how do they know so much? They're not even here. And I don't want to be one of those guys. So, So this is a really inartful uh, way to say that uh, I don't think I can answer it. David, thank you
0: for um, sharing um, that precious information with us. Um, I work extensively with Vietnam veterans Mm. recovering from um, the aftermath of war. And a lot of their wounding has resulted from society not understanding what they experienced. And I think your book has gone a long way to dispel that. I'm also concerned about uh, your well-being.
1: Um, mm, that's nice. Yes. No, no. I'm, I, you know, I you? swore <laughs> I wouldn't be so serious today. Uh, uh, you know, the other thing Friend said is uh, some of this works in America, but in Australia uh, you have to be a little funnier. And uh, <laughs> so this is my attempt to be funny. Can you imagine? Holy cow. Uh, you know, I'm okay. Okay. Uh, For two reasons. One, uh, um, I had an advantage that the soldiers didn't have. Well, I had two advantages. Number one, I didn't have a weapon and I wasn't under orders to fight a war. I was there to chronicle the war. Uh, And I could also take breaks. Uh, So every month, six weeks, two months when uh, I could feel myself getting pretty baked on this, uh, I could go out. I could either uh, catch a helicopter and work my way over. The Washington Post has a Baghdad, uh, bureau in Baghdad. I could go there for a couple of days. I could drink. I could, uh, I could sleep late and not worry about rocket attacks. You know, that's a really amazing thing. Or I could come home uh, and do some reporting in the States. The soldiers, uh, of course, didn't have that luxury. Fifteen months, 14 months on the ground there, 18 days home leave. And the rest of the time, they had to keep dressing up and 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 going out in those convoys. And, and think back to the video. It was a nice day, but the potential was always there to make a right turn and to end up in a smoke cloud. And and you know, I've I've not. I was eligible for Vietnam, but I didn't serve in Vietnam. Uh, so I've done a lot of reading about other wars, and and I've read that 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 at. World War II earlier, you know, there, there are almost predictable patterns. If you were a soldier, you could pretty much figure out when you were going to have a bad day and when you were going to have a good day. And 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 the hard thing about Iraq for these guys was it was a twenty-four hour thing. You just you just never knew. So even on a day that seemed lovely and you were joking around, uh, you know, it could just turn like that. And there was never a chance for them to take a knee to relax. And and so you know, the work you're talking about, uh, I think just now we're beginning to see the war moving out of Iraq and into American communities. And uh, Adam Schumann is an extreme example, but they're mostly the guys in that battalion are fine, but that doesn't mean that they're over this war. Uh, As in any war, uh, soldiers from any country, it's it's ever present. Uh, And every one of them, even the sturdiest guy, I knew over there, uh, I've become a confidant in a way. I get emails all the time, this is rough, this is rough. No one knows it, but this was horrible. I did read a study once that said, if you kill someone, like 90% of the people who have killed someone in war, it's an issue toward the front of their minds for the rest of their lives, and the 5% who don't have an issue with it, uh, they're actually uh, uh, psychopaths, yeah, but seriously. So, uh, so for these guys, you know, this war is anything but over. My, thanks for the work and the question. Hi, David.
0: Um, I was curious about how much contact you have with uh, Ralph and the soldiers of the 216 today and whether there's any possibility of a follow-up book in, say, five or ten years' time.
1: Well, Khashorj is back over in Iraq, <coughs> down in Basra, and he's, he's doing okay. Um, a lot of the soldiers came back, went to different battalions... Uh, Many have moved on to Afghanistan. Some have come home from Afghanistan with injuries from that war rather than uh, Iraq. Uh, the 216 uh, is back in Iraq. Uh, they're probably a couple months away from coming home. And, uh, yeah, so they've all moved on. See, that, you know, and to get back to your question, the, uh, one of the reasons I think I'm, I'm fine is, uh, is I came home and uh, basically spent the next year uh, I was saying to someone earlier, it's, it's, a, it's a totally abnormal thing, war. I mean, I mean, we're all prone to conflict. But this was, this was aberrant, uh, beyond aberrant. And yet when you were there, it, it was your life. It made sense. So I came home, and I had 11 months to basically sort it out and, and, and put it in some kind of frame that made logical or at least narrative sense. And I think doing that uh, was, was quite cathartic. The soldiers came back. They moved on to a new assignment uh, right away, and, uh, and that's another reason I think it sticks with them and probably sticks with your guys. Uh, but so to get back, yeah, they're, uh, they're out there again, and then they'll come home, and I'm sure they'll go out again. There's a whole new war to be part of, right?
0: David, can you tell us a bit more about uh, Brent Cummings? He seems like a, a particularly layered person, a deep thinker, a very mm-hmm. moral person. Yeah. who seemed to be searching for uh, trying to reach out and grasp a sense of purpose while he was there and the good things. Maybe that anecdote, uh, that story of Izzy's daughter. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit more about him and what you make of his journey from the start to the end of the book?
1: Well, uh, that's another uh, lucky break I think I got in this book, that there was a Brent Cummings who, who I think... You know, the, things, the thing that would get me over there... Uh, wasn't the violence? Uh, wasn't how horrible it was? But but against that backdrop, these these small acts of of, of normalcy or people trying to act decently—you know—I just just uh, how I say it—I uh, was a pretty weepy guy over there. Uh, I guess it was, uh, it was so extreme, and many of those examples of decency came from Brent Cummings. Uh, uh, the example you're talking about, there was a day, you guys remember the picture of Izzy, the, uh, the Pan American World Airways guy? Um, he was out in uh, he was home one day when a huge, huge car bomb went off outside of his building. And, uh, and we were all at the dining facility, and Brent Cummings' uh, cell phone rang, and it was Izzy just screaming, help me, sir, help me, sir. There's been a terrible bomb, and, uh, and my daughter is injured. And they had tried to get in a hospital, but the hospital was so overrun with injured people that they they turned to this, you know, good luck. We're not dealing with her. So he was on a street corner and uh, saying, can you help me? And uh, Brent, uh, I think to his credit, uh, figured out a way to bend the rules uh, to get an Iraqi who had been injured on the base for medical help. And, uh, and, uh, could have gotten in trouble for it, but he, he figured out a way to do it. And uh, that's, you know, day after day, until the end, that was the example of Brent Cummings and a lot of the soldiers. Uh, and I think for most of us, that would be our experience. We, uh, you know, we would try to do the decent thing in this, in this indecent place. So, you know, at the end, uh, when it became so violent, and, uh, and Brent uh, screamed out, die, monkey, die, which is, is, you know, I'm sure he's embarrassed about that now, but it made perfect sense in the evolution of, of a young man uh, trying to come to terms with, uh, with the foreign policy. Is that a way to answer it? Yeah. I mean, if you, if you, ever, if you guys ever read the book, uh, I think in Brent Cummings you'll, you'll see uh, the person you would like to be uh, if you were in that war.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, time is going to beat us. Can I please uh, just endorse those remarks, you know, that kind of modest appraisal, if you think you might ever read the book. Uh, it, it is a fantastic book. And I think even in the, the brief time that we've been able to listen to David tonight, there's um, uh this, this man has a, I think he's a magnet for humanity. I think he's got a pretty keen sense of, uh, of, of the dilemmas that these people must have faced. Um, he faced his own dilemma when he came here tonight, a little bit of anxiety over the slides, but <laughs> uh, but that's nothing compared to what he has uh, lived through and then written about so superbly. Please give a, a round of applause to Dave. Thanks very so much, Dave. We hope you enjoyed this podcast recorded at the 2010 Perth Writers' Festival. If you'd like to hear other sessions from the festival, go to abc.net.au slash Perth slash Writers Festival.